Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity's been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have also forged a life in the capital away from home and about the ups and downs that can bring. With me today is crime novelist, endurance athlete and channel swimmer, Lexi Elliott. Lexi's latest book is rather scarily called How to Kill Your Best Friend. So I think today I'll just be sticking to nice questions. Scots Care. Supporting Scots away from home in London. Hi, Lexi. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Have you been training this morning? Because I said in the introduction to the podcast that you were a a pretty high-end athlete. So have you been up and at it this morning? I have. um, My youngest son and I went for a two-hour bike ride, actually. Wow. Are you an an early riser naturally or does does it still hurt? Uh, it does still hurt a little, um, but I, I feel so annoyed with myself if I let the day get away with me. And if you push your exercise to the evening, quite often something gets in the way. So I do try and get it done in the morning. Let's get the book bit out of the way so that I can get to talking about you. I love the title of your new book, How to Kill Your Best Friend. And I think it just jumps off the shelf. Did you think that idea up? Was that yours? It was actually. It's the first um, title that I've ever come up with that stuck. And in fact, for this novel, um, the title was the first thing that came to me. And I immediately thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, why would you even want to kill your best friend? What must be in the history, the shared past of these friends that that would even be something you'd consider? Um, but normally I, I write a book under some kind of, you know, working project title, knowing full well that that won't stick. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that. I wonder how many people do that. You come up with a, a great title and then almost try to, you know, reverse ferret into it and, and create a plot all around the title. Yeah, I, I don't know how often it happens. It certainly never happened for me before. Um, it's just a jumping off point, I suppose, uh, that intrigues you. And then all the other things that you normally do, like ordinarily I would start with a setting, um, and an atmosphere that intrigues me and in some way I want to explore a little more and then the cast of characters come to me. Um, And all of that happened after I'd come with the title. Um, So the normal process did kind of resume, it's just that the title seemed to jump ahead of its usual place. A friend of mine used to work for one of the Red Tops, I can't remember if it's a Sun or the Mirror, and he said they used to have regular brainstorm meetings where they would think up headlines for stuff that hadn't even happened yet. Yeah, I heard that. I mean, there's that famous one about um, Ali McCoyst, isn't there? Like, Super Ali goes ballistic, Celtic were atrocious or something like that. Oh, so, it was about Caledonian Thistle. Super Cali uh, went ballistic, Celtic were atrocious. Ah, so they had it in mind, I hear, for Ali McCoyst. And then ah. they realised that they could repurpose it um, and when, you know, events transpired as they did. So, um it's an interesting way to, to do the news, that's for sure. I know, yeah. I don't think it's the best way, maybe. Hmm. Yeah. Does your <laughs> does your husband contribute to your ideas and your plots? No, 
but I do occasionally ask him about legal angles because he is a lawyer. Um, so the missing years particularly had a couple of um, technical points of law, which turned out were different in Scotland anyway. But I just talked to him about, well, how would that work? And, you know, um, that gave me a bit of background to, to go and research it a bit further. Christopher Brookmeyer came on the podcast recently and he was talking about how he writes. And I said, do you have to have a, a certain setup? You know, because we, we started speaking about how I'd gone, I'd taken the kids to the Raoul Dahl house and looked oh, at yeah. how, how Raoul Dahl wrote. And you thought, wow, that what this man achieved in a ratty old armchair with this board across his knees. And I said, do you need something like that, Christopher? And he said, no, I can, I can write anywhere. But what I have to do is walk. I have to be able to get out and walk and then he takes a tape recorder or a phone with him and then he kind of transcribes the idea once he gets back do you have a process that works for you well before the pandemic I never wrote at home um, because I would just find uh, something anything to distract me I mean it's amazing how interesting doing the laundry scenes when you're trying to avoid writing um, so I would go and write in a cafe um, often actually at my local leisure club so that um, I would have coffee on tap if I needed it and I could just sit down and crack on and then of course the pandemic happened and I realized I was never going to write another word if I didn't figure out how to write at home so I got pretty good at it and now I would say I really can write just about anywhere um I probably spend 50% of my time writing at home 50% elsewhere uh I, sometimes a change of scene I, is needed just to break up the day and to give you some fresh ideas but I do some something like Christopher, I, I do find that when I'm stuck, what works for me is to go for a run or go for a swim and, and just give your brain a chance to, I don't know, get wiped clean by the cardio and, and maybe come up with a fresh angle on things. Um, but I don't ever use a, a voice recorder or anything. That's not a process that I use. Well, do you know what? I find it quite heartening that you say you get distracted because I get terribly <laughs> distracted. I get distracted, you know, when I'm doing it, even when I'm prepping to talk to you on the on the podcast, and I'm interested in it. I am, and I, I really look forward to speaking to you, but suddenly I do have to empty the dishwasher and I'll have another cup of tea, <laughs> or have another, or I'll put the washing out the back. So I think when I was reading about you and I was thinking, my goodness, this is such a disciplined woman to find that you are human as well. And you want to maybe put the laundry on is, is super. I think it's heartening for us average mortals. Well, I think um, most of life is about uh, trying to work out what works best for you, isn't it? About what your process is to get the most out of uh, yourself. And, you know, sometimes that means accepting that, yeah, you probably will go and put the laundry on. And sometimes that's accepting that, you know, if you have something on in the evening that you're looking forward to going to, then give yourself a word target and um, you have to hit that word target before you can go and do this other thing that those little micro deadlines can be quite helpful. Where's your accent from Lexi? Where were you brought up? Uh, about 20 miles north of Sterling. All right. Eh? Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I was thinking you, you sometimes sound slightly Glaswegian, but you know, did you go to the same school as Andy Murray? Uh, for high school? Yes. Ah, that's a pretty good alumni. You and Andy Murray. <laughs> yes people always say oh if I had nothing else to do if I all I had to do was write a book I could write a book but you wrote a book while bringing up two kids and having another job is that not just too much well I always wanted to be a writer and the thing with um being a writer is um you do actually have to write you have to have a project to go out and hawk if you actually wanted to be published uh so I was 
writing alongside but initially I was just writing short stories and so forth and and what actually happened was I got uh well I lost my job in the global financial crisis I was working in um, investment banking and I was one of the many who who found themselves without a job um in 2008-2009 and at that point whilst I was looking for something new and had had very young children I, I thought maybe this is the time to kind of throw myself into a project of a novel. And I'd had some recent success at a short story co- uh, competitions at that point. And I think that gave me the confidence to think, yeah, let's give this a crack. Um, but then I did get an, another job and, and I was working three days a week um, in the city in asset management, um, which I did right up until recently. And in fact, how to kill your best friend was, was written all the, all through that time when I was, holding down that job also um and I I at the time said that actually it was a really good balance I mean at times it was completely nuts and I had to take holiday from work to meet a writing deadline for example um but I was just about sort of juggling it and writing is very solitary so I did enjoy the social aspect of going into a workplace but but that became very different in the pandemic you know there, there wasn't the same social aspect of doing the work three days a week from your from your own house and then writing from your own house you know I, and I started to think that actually it would be quite nice to to be full-time on the writing and and that's where I am now but I'm not ruling out um doing a little bit more work in the in the financial industry because um I do enjoy that I I have a brain that kind of works that way as well so um yeah, maybe maybe I'll be mixing the two in the future. Who knows? Are you able to compartmentalize your time? I don't. Something I don't do very well. An example of this is like we were driving along the other day, and Rafe, my nine-year-old, he's got a very idiosyncratic brain, and he, he was asking me why he keeps seeing certain adverts on the internet. So he basically, he's asking me to explain the Google algorithm to him. And I'm trying <laughs> to luck. explain this to a nine-year-old as I'm driving, and 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 Indy, my four-year-old's in the back going what's an algorithm what's google you know and so it's just it's just bloody chaos right as you're trying to drive and at the same time as all this is going on i still have my work thundering through my head like a steam train a lot of the time i find it very difficult to say now i'm with the kids now i'm just working can you can you find that compartmentalization i think it's tricky at times um particularly if i'm really heavily into the writing process it's much easier if i'm just uh, in in an editing phase but if i'm heavily in the writing process i i need to pull myself out and actually really properly engage and and be conscious of trying to do that um because it's not it's not that fair to the kids that they come home and they have a mum who's like you know with six other characters that don't exist in her brain um, so yeah, I do notice that too, that it, it can be quite tricky. And sometimes if I know I'm going from writing to, I don't know, spending time with the kids, I give myself like a, a coffee break or something just to try and, and clear my head before I, before I re-engage with them. Scots Care. For Scots in London in need of support, financial, practical or emotional help. You said right from childhood, and I've read this about you, you've said that you wanted to write, but your, your career path kind of took you in a different direction because you did physics at uni and then you worked in, in banking, which are very, fact. I might, I might have this wrong, you may be able to kind of amalgamate all in your head, but they seem to be very fact-based, almost scientific things. 
and then and then to write a book seems right at the other it's kind of the polar opposite of that a very arty thing to do how did you always did you just have an arty side and a factual side I tend to think that people are one or the other I had and have a um a complete love of words and um literature and reading and you know I've always had that side of me and I as as you say I always always wanted to write as soon as I knew the books didn't magically disappear that somebody had actually written them as soon as I was old enough to understand that then that was what I wanted to do but I also understood you know growing up I look I was in no way um in a, a childhood with them um, uh with difficulty but um you know also wasn't a childhood where you thought oh I can go and do whatever I want and there's there wasn't a trust fund to pick me up right mm. I needed to get a job that would pay the bills and I think when I when it came to going to university I was dithering between English and physics and my feeling was that you could follow an interest in literature in your own time but you couldn't do the same with the physics and the physics was more likely to to lead to you know a good job and um I suppose uh I think there are lots of things about having done a, a physics degree and a PhD in physics in fact um that are, uh, ended up lending themselves to uh some disciplines that are very good as a writer for example, when you do a PhD, there's nobody who has the answers and nobody's going to finish it for you. It's very different to doing a degree. If you get stuck when you're revising for your degree, you go find a tutor or a lecturer who can help you answer this particular type of question and you learn how to do it. And it doesn't work that way for your for your doctorate. It's kind of all on you. And, you know, books are all on you and all from your own head and nobody's going to make you finish it except yourself. Um, so that discipline's really good. And also, I think there's a, a certain structure to to writing a novel that really hangs together. And again, a discipline to thinking that through and holding it all in your head. And I don't I don't think that's so very different to some of the things I learned um, through um, coding and um, financial modeling and, and that side of things. Um, and I think my, that my career uh, in the financial industry taught me to be professional. And that um, translates very well across to the writing, because at the end of the day, your publishing editor wants you to deliver things on time. They want you to be polite. They want you to take criticism and see how you can better your product. And they want to go home on time and see their own family and not be stuck in the office because an egotistical author couldn't deliver you know so I think it helps that I I learned how to be very professional where does the drive come from Lexi is it from your parents because you when you look at you and I, I'm I'm sure like all of us you're just human and you have your wobbly moments but where have you always been so driven was that your parents because when I look at you and I read about you you've run marathons you've run ultra marathons you've you've swam or is it swum the channel which I want to come back <laughs> yeah. to uh, but that's that's extraordinary these are extraordinary achievements you know me just think I can't even go to the gym in the evening I'd rather pour a glass of red wine and binge watch Netflix so where does your drive for that keeps you moving forward I'm not sure whether it came from my parents they certainly gave me every opportunity for anything I was interested in but I tend to think those kind of uh drives just are in you or they're not 
you, you want to do this stuff or, or you don't, I guess. Um, and whether it's an element of proving yourself, uh, maybe. I, I certainly felt after swimming the channel that I had proved myself in swimming and that if I never swam and never uh, another stroke that actually, you know, I, I had really proved that I, I was a, a good swimmer. But I, I think it's just looking for things that are fresh and different and you know even now my husband and I are always looking for um, something fun to do I think we're going to try some of these um, swim run where you you swim a little section then you run and then you're back in the water and then you're running again and you do it as a team and you know that's something new for us and I think we're always looking for something that seems like it'll be fun and a new experience. Now, you don't get to your level of success without stumbling. How do you shake off the black dogs or the failures when you're saying, you know, I want to swim the channel or I want to run this marathon? You don't just get up and run it. You must have, you must have bad days as, as, as well as good and possibly as many bad days where you don't feel it. Yeah, you really do. Um, and I think that's part of the discipline of it, to, to keep moving forward and not let them derail you. Because, yeah, you certainly do have, have bad days and you doubt yourself. Um, I, with time, you perhaps learn to trust the body of work that you've done better. And that applies to the writing too. You know, um, the fourth book, I'm not going to say it was easier to write, but I had more faith maybe that I would get to the end and that I would get over any of the obstacles and stumbling blocks along the way. Um, and, and then the other thing about me and the sporting stuff, I would say, is that actually I'm one of those people who enjoys the training. Um, whereas some people just enjoy racing and competing. I actually do enjoy the training and I enjoy the feeling of a long run, both during, maybe not immediately, it probably takes a good 20 minutes to get into it, but you know, I enjoy the experience and I enjoy how I feel after it. Um, and all of that just becomes you know, a, a virtuous cycle, I guess, to, to, to tell you, the next time you don't feel like doing it, you're like, come on, get out the door, you'll be fine, you know. Do you ever meditate? Duncan Powell and I, the Star Wars actor, were talking on the podcast and he said meditation has kind of changed his life. It allowed him to kind of calm his head a bit or is that what the running does for you when you're just pounding the miles? Yeah, I think that's what any kind of, you know, long cardio does for me and meditation, yeah, I'm, you know, oh, oh, good luck to all of those for whom it works for and you know that's great that they find something and it just doesn't seem to be for me yeah i read a quote which i really liked that you said you said people in your life mm -hmm. are what make it worth living did if you don't mind me asking did this philosophy come sharply into focus after your mum passed away in 2020 um i think it probably was more kind of birth of my kids where okay. it that becomes very much the thing and you realize you know these these little creatures are just amazing and uh and they really are what what makes what makes your life um my mum passing away it was such a long process I mean Alzheimer's is is such a cruel disease and it, it certainly doesn't strike swiftly or suddenly uh so I feel like uh that was a series of small goodbyes if you if if you want to put it that way for a very long period of time so there weren't any stark realizations along the way with that 
And did that coincide, Lexi, did that coincide with COVID? Did that make it even more difficult? Yeah, so she did, um, she did pass away during COVID. Um, I guess it was August 2020. Um, it made it a small funeral because there was uh, limits on how many people could be there. I think in Scotland it was 20 at the time. Mm. Um, having said that, that made it a really close, really, really just a very close family and very close friends uh, type of funeral, which was wonderful too. But having said that, my mum had been such a, a vivacious, sociable woman. She'd taught for years. There would have been lots of people at a funeral had it been able to be, you know, a, a big event. And I, I was sad about that, but also I was pleased that I was able to have a proper chat with everybody who, who was able to attend. Um, and it was a quite a nice goodbye. Um, I, I, look, I think funerals can be desperately sad if it's a real surprise. And, and my mum's death shouldn't have been a shock when it happened, but somehow these things always are a little um, but yeah, you, as I say, I'd had many years to expect it to happen. And um, it was really nice to have a, a, a coming together of the people that meant the most to her. Yeah. My mum my passed away in 2012 and then my dad passed away in April 2020 during the COVID thing. And that was difficult because we couldn't at that point even have a funeral. We had to have an oh. unatten un un unattended service and, you know, and I didn't see him before. And but, you know, and so... Days I still feel very overwhelmed by it. If, but if I look and I try and take a positive from it, is that that did connect me more to my kids. It kind of made me think about my mortality more, and and I tend to get caught up in work. And so it did allow me to go back to that word I said earlier, compartmentalize a bit. And that's why your quote kind of struck me a little bit. People in your life are what make it worth living. And what I've been trying to do is kind of I didn't spend much time with my extended family. Do you have extended family? The closest family is obviously the, the four of us, my husband and the two kids. Um, and we see my sister, who's a little older than me, but has three three-year-old twins. And we try and see her as often as, as we can. We try and see my dad. Um, Matt's parents live not terribly far away from us in southwest London. And his brother and his wife and their two kids are not terribly far away. And, and those are the people that we, we mainly see. Um, there's... Uh, my nana lives in Birmingham and it's actually been more difficult to go and see her through obviously the pandemic when you're trying not to drag COVID into you know a woman and her I'm sure she wouldn't like me saying her age but you know she's not too far from the queen's age <laughs> um, and uh, you know and I wanted to go and see her just recently but one of the boys had a cold and you're just I, I can't I can't do it I can't take you know anyone who's sick to go and see my nana so that becomes more difficult um but yeah we do we do uh try and see family as as much as possible there's there's always so much going on and you do have to really work hard to find uh time to to put it in the diaries to make sure it happens I think otherwise you know time just races away from you yeah. But I'm sorry you didn't manage to have a funeral. That must have been very sad. Did you manage to do anything a little bit later? Or yeah, you... we, we went back to Scotland and we we planted we planted a tree in the garden here, uh, just outside London, and we we planted a tree in in the uh, the crematorium. And so I and do you know what the strange thing is? I now probably go back to Glasgow more since my dad passed away than I did when I used to speak to him every day on the phone. But so I oh, I've wow. almost felt like a, a reconnection with Scotland and trying to 
to get back more yeah. and and try I tried to take my kids back more and, and say look because my kids live just outside London they've got loads of cousins that live just outside Glasgow and saying these people are your family you know let's try exactly. and make an effort but as you say the time and then mobilizing the families like mobilizing an army and then you have to remortgage the house to do it and it's so we, we do yeah. what we can yeah. yeah I think that's right everybody does what they can I mean I'm very conscious that my sister's twins like my boys are, are the only cousins they're ever gonna have and it's really really important that there's a connection there and I I'm just like with you I feel like that makes us really put it in the diary we must we must go but I love taking the boys up to Scotland and my youngest particularly is so taken with it I mean he's trying to work out if he could go to university in Scotland and if he could live there he just really adores the countryside and the people and and feels very at home there so I wouldn't be at all surprised if he ends up living in Scotland my nine-year-old Rafe thinks he can do a Scottish accent, and I think he sounds like a, he sounds like an American leprechaun. And he's, and he's going, "But Dad, it's good." Like, no, it's really, really bad. Scots Care, helping to break the cycle of deprivation for Scots in London. Swimming the Channel, which phenomenal achievement! Can I just ask? I know you've. You did it. Let's go away from the, the the athletic prowess it took to do it. Were you scared? I was scared before I did it of the just size of the challenge and the mountain that I had to climb, basically. Um, I wasn't scared during it. Um, I think once you're in a thing, you're, you just kind of crack on. There was a slightly disconcerting period when... Um, so I, I swam through some water and it just didn't feel right and it felt like it was tugging me down I'd, I'd looked ahead before and I'd seen it was like a little bit glassy uh but I just felt like I was being tugged down and I stuck my head up and asked the uh people on the boat you know what's going on and they said J- it's okay just swim through it swim through it um and they told me later obviously you know once I, would, I was done with the swim that what happened was a, a tanker had done essentially like a skidding sharp turn there and it sets up uh, a sort of mini vortex a mini whirlpool um and it's not it was never going to be strong enough to drag me down or anything but that was what I was feeling that little tug there um so that was kind of interesting and I do remember thinking this just doesn't feel right but I don't know that I was scared because the boat was right there to fish me out if I really was in some life-threatening danger but I do remember being thoroughly daunted and really worried beforehand that that I just wasn't going to make it across not only is it it's like 20 nearly 22 miles that you swam and it's one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world why do you set off at 2 a.m is that just to add an extra fear factor (laughs) so it's very much dependent on on the tides um and so they the boat pilot will look at, you know, your speed and and you don't actually swim a straight kind of 22 miles. You, you swim really far east and then the tide turns and brings you back really far west and you hope it delivers you bang on Cap Greenay. And that's the expertise of the boat pilot because they're setting the course and you're just kind of swimming alongside the boat. Um, so, yeah, that that was that was it. It was very much dependent on, you know, the, the tides. Um, on, on the particular day that I was swimming that meant that 2am was the right start uh, which was fine um, it was quite choppy to begin with 
um, and obviously dark, but kind of cool. You know, I had a, a light stick in my goggles and a light stick um, pinned to um, the bottom of my swimsuit so that they had two reference points. They could see if I started, you know, swimming off to a completely the wrong direction somewhere towards Norway or something. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Can you yeah, imagine? I, that, now, that wouldn't have been an achievement. First woman to swim to Norway. <laughs> especially if you're planning to get to France yes <laughs> so uh yeah and and it was quite surreal I mean that experience of swimming and you seeing lights on tankers or the old ferry or, or something like that thinking there's probably no one else in the water I, I think there might have been a, a relay boat in the water at some point during the night um but thinking how many people in the world are ever going to have this experience this is really cool would you do it again or would you plan some would you swim another large body of water do you know for doing the channel again people often ask me that and my answer is that normally when you do an athletic endeavor again it's because you want to do it better which usually means faster and with the channel you know you could be in much better shape and still do it slower because it's so conditions dependent I suppose if one of my kids wanted to do it and wanted me to do it too I might say yes but you know they're at the stage where they swim faster than me anyway so you know I don't think there would be much point um would I swim something else big yeah maybe um but also there's other challenges that I might decide to do instead so uh, yeah, I I don't know. I haven't got an answer on that one. Okay, we can come back to that one day. Now, you're writing your fourth novel, Bright and Deadly Things. I like that. That's another great title. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, was me too. <laughs> what was it? When, when, yeah. that, this, is this the first one you have written without having to look after the kids and go to work? Is this the first one where you're sitting down as a, a full-time novelist? Yeah, I think maybe the first few chapters happened before that, but then the, the bulk of it has been, you know, full-time novelist. Um, and it was a it was a tough uh, novel to write. To be honest, it took me a while to sort of find my way into it. But it's it's finished. Um, I'm doing kind of the tail end of the copy editing, and they'll be proofing. But it, it's it's pretty much done and dusted, actually. If all goes to plan, when will that be on the bookshelves? Uh, early next year, I'm afraid I don't have a particular date, but I think um, probably towards the end of the first quarter of next year. Oh, great. Well, would you come back and speak to us when it's out? More than happy to speak to you anytime. Oh, good. I'm glad you didn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> would it be a little awkward, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, these awkward questions. No, no, thanks. Yeah, but no. <laughs> Lexi Elliott, thank you very much for being part of the Scots Care podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Scots Care, the charity helping to break the cycle of poverty some Scots find in London.